Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today we have a very special guest, Pastor Brian Loritz. Welcome, Pastor Loritz. Oh, it's good to be here, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. I'm excited to have you on. For those who don't know who you are, can you just give them a little bit of background? Yeah, Pastor Brian Loritz. I am the senior pastor of the Abundant Life Christian Fellowship here in Mountain View, California, which is right next to Palo Alto, kind of right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And uh, I, before that, I pastored in New York City and then in Memphis, Tennessee, and have uh, really given my life uh, to see uh, the multi-ethnic church become the new normal. So married, uh, be 19 years this summer, and have uh, three boys, Quentin, who's 17, Miles, who's 15, and Jaden, who's 13. So. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to have you on. And today we're going to talk about something that I think is very relevant to uh, our community and also something that I'm sure you know about with the work you do. I'm talking about how to to engage um, issues of race without growing bitter. Um, Why do you think that this is such an important topic for us today? Yeah, I think I think whenever you talk about race, you know, of course, you're, you're talking about America's historic sin. I mean, it is it is what has defined uh, us and nipped at our heels since day one. Um, our whole society, almost since day one, uh, was predicated uniquely on race. So and it, it no pun intended, it literally colors just about everything that that, that we do today. So, you know, oftentimes you hear uh, theologians point out that the difference between race in the Bible, I should say slavery in the Bible and slavery in America, is that slavery in the Bible had nothing to do with the color of one's skin. In fact, for most of modern history, that was the case. You were a slave if you were a conquered peoples. Um, So therefore, it was very much imperialistic. Um, American slavery had the uniqueness of literally... Uh, putting a color 
and a value attached to that color uh, on, on people in general. So it's almost laughable when a person says, yeah, but there's one race, the human race. I understand that, but that violates every law of grammar. And what, what grammatical laws teach you is there's something called etymology, and it is the idea that words evolve over time. Now, you here is the etymology of words. And so when you talk about race, in, in one sense, it is man-made. It's like polyester. Polyester is a man-made deal, but it's very real. And what we've done is we have attached the issue of race to color and value being commensurate with that. So because it's a part of our narrative, you can't help but to respond to it in one way, shape or form. It colors everything about you, colors how you see life, colors how you approach politics, colors how you see the scriptures. Um, We all all have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And talking about the issue of race, because it's so many people, especially in majority culture, are so resistant to the conversation, um, are not honest about the conversation. It could cause those who are in the minority culture, African-Americans, to always feel that we are not being heard, which can cause in us a bitterness. Um, How do we shield ourselves from from that? Um, For some people, it's to retreat and not deal with the conversation at all. Some, it's up for some, is to be perpetually angry, um, and and always finding it's, uh, themselves in a place of frustration um, and bitterness. How how can we? How would you advise us to to navigate through that? Couple of things. One, the average white person, it's been my experience, does not think in terms of whiteness. Um, this is not to give them a pass, but they have been privileged to have been able to navigate America in such a way that they don't have to be cognizant of their whiteness, making them oblivious to a whole lot of things. It's what Dr. Corey Edwards, the analogy she uses is it's, it's like having one arm in a two armed society. Right now, you and I have two arms uh, that are fully functioning. We're not cognizant of that. Like we're not, we're not consciously going, I have two arms. But if you have one arm, it is impossible for you to disconnect from the reality of your limitations. And so being a minority is like being a one-armed person in a two-armed society. And I think what our white brothers and sisters need to do is they need to be able to flip a switch and not in a pejorative sense, but they do need to recognize that, hey, I'm white. Uh, and, and I'm going to be careful. That's not a four-letter word, by the way. But because they're white, being able to think on that terms allows them to be able to steward the privileges and the power they've got in a very responsible way. You cannot steward anything well that you don't recognize and own. So that's the first thing. Uh, by the way, you know, I'm on record saying this. It's not very popular. I don't I don't demonize that. I don't think there's a problem with someone having privilege. So I hate someone using white privilege as if that's the problem. All of us have a measure of privilege. Now, some people's measure is a lot bigger than others. But look, I got two parents who are celebrating 47 years of marriage. 
two black parents celebrating 47 years of marriage who love Jesus and a father who's actively involved in my life. That's privilege. If I said the last name Loritz, that opens doors for me. That's privilege. Should I feel guilty about that? No. I, I think what I should do is to acknowledge I've been afforded a measure of privilege, couldn't control that. How do I steward that well towards others? So I think on the white side of the table, uh, they need to be able to see their whiteness, think cognizantly of their whiteness, and that'll help them be able to steward their privilege well. On our side of the table, minorities, I think there's something inherently wrong with us lingering in disappointment with our white brothers and sisters, almost expecting them to have some kind of a messianic role in our lives. They ain't Jesus. So yes, we speak truth to power. Yes, we call out the injustice. But I think some lingering disappointment is really an indicator light of white idolization on the part of minorities. And whenever you idolize somebody and allow them to have a position that's greater than the Messiah's, now, now you're gonna allow them to disappoint you in ways that is out of step with the gospel. There should be a sense in which we speak truth to power, we grieve over injustice, but we don't let it disproportionately devastate us because they ain't our idol. I don't need their acceptance or approval for me to do what God wants me to do in my life, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I know a lot of people are struggling with that, that idea of what you just said. Some people might even say that you're being too passive um, with that, um, because I think when you're doing this work as far as talking about race, you you might have two two uh two critics on one side you have those who um on the majority culture that don't want to talk about it but then if you take a position just like you took you might have those who are african americans who say you are too passive so you you there's a chance to be bitter from both ends am i making sense yes absolutely so i mean it, it just depends on what the scenario is if there is grave disappointment because a minority was hired under the auspices of bringing institutionalized systemic change in their work environment, whether it's a minority who's been hired on a white staff uh, at a church or at a white institution at a church. And, and you're going, okay, the honeymoon period's over and I'm feeling like a token here. I think you do ring the alarm. That's what I'm saying. You speak truth to power. But at whatever point it becomes apparent that they're asking you to make bricks without straw. And you're spinning your wheels. You've got a choice. Either stay in the system and spin your wheels and let that intoxicate your spirit. Or move on. I mean, it really is. And look, you know, I'm 45. I'm, I'm going to be 45 years old this weekend. And at my stage in life, I ain't got time to to get bitter over something or to stay in something. It's like it's like staying in a toxic relationship. At some point, you got to go, you know, I've tried my best to make this work. And I'm talking vocationally now. It ain't working. 
she ain't going to change. Now, now what am I going to do? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And in a work scenario, I didn't take vows, you know? So I, I think there comes a point where you go, I've done the best that I could. I've labored. I felt like God called me here. I did it all. At whatever point you go, this thing is robbing me of my joy. It has turned me into a bitter, negative, cynical person. It's time to break up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just don't know how to say it any clearer than that. Mm-hmm. Some people are in situations where it just ain't going to work. And you have tried over a period of time. So for your own emotional health, you need to turn in your resume somewhere else and just hit the road. So that's that's where I'm at. In my 20-somethings and early 30-somethings, I was still on this ideal thing. We, we could change. You could change. Almost almost like that um, that girlfriend who gets with that guy and she just says, I'm on a mission to change him. You ain't going to change him. <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So if that's the scenario you're talking to me about, that's not passivity. Passivity is, is, is staying in the situation and giving up while becoming bitter. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. That, that ain't working. So, yeah, I have friends that that are, are committed to the work you're talking about and frustrated. My testimony is a little bit different. I'm in a, a all black church space. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I have to I do do lectures in, in, in white evangelical spaces for seminaries and things. So I'm in and out. So I don't have the same level of frustration because I visit. I don't reside. Um, Well, so um, so I I think that's good. Let me say a couple of things I think may be helpful. I think the first thing you've got to get clarity on is, and no one else can answer this for the proverbial you, but you. And that is, what has God called me to do? What's God called me to do? I can tell you right now, God's called me to work towards multi-ethnicity within the local church. That's my lane. The moment you you settle God's calling for you, that's the moment life in some senses becomes so less burdensome. Because now I don't have to compete with other people. You know, I got a good friend of mine, Dr. Eric Mason. I love Eric. Eric is called to minister in an urban environment, primarily with people of color. I'm not saying solely, but primarily. Eric and I are great friends. I used to call Eric, um, I'm his Theo Huxtable, he's my Allen Iverson. I mean, we're just, we're different. Uh, like Paul with Peter, we're just, we're just different. And, and calling frees you up from that. Also what calling does is, it, it on those rough seasons of life and ministry, where I feel really depleted, what makes me sleep well at night is to know I'm called here. This is, this is where I'm called. And the ability to be able to rest in that and to understand this is my call. Now, here's, here's what kept me sane 12 years in Memphis, the hardest place to do a multi-ethnic church. And white people did, there were some great white people at the church. There were some others who just were hell-bent on making life miserable for me. The only way I made it 12 years was calling. And then I just think every minority needs pockets to exhale. Mm-hmm. 
And what I mean by that is I had a group of all black friends and we played golf and I didn't have to translate nothing to them. Uh, I could slip into uh, another gear with them. There's a sense in which I could let my hair down. I could verbally vomit on them. And they could legitimately sympathize and empathize with me. And after 18 holes, I had enough wind in my sails to be able to engage my church once again. I, I would encourage every minority who's especially in a all white setting or multi-ethnic setting, you got to be able to breathe. And, you know, if, if you're at a all white church, uh, all, excuse me, all white, you know, university asked to make them diverse, join you a black church. Um, you know, if you pledged, be really engaged with the alphas, the kappas, whatever, you have to have that or you will lose your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely helpful for, for those to remain balanced in, in those spaces. Um, when we look at social media, there's a lot of stuff for us to be angry about all the time. Um, there's a, a, a article, there's a meme, there's something to make us angry. There's something to make us want to respond to it. How do we, how do we use social media in a way um, that is wise? Because we don't want to always be jumping on every um, every article or talking about every issue to the point where people aren't listening to us because we're raising the issue about everything. Um, so we're not being heard as it relates to anything. Um, what what would be some some uh, some nuggets you would give us as it relates to that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the analogy I use, uh, Lisa, is, you know, um, imagine you're at a piano and all those keys are beautiful. There's distinct notes um, that when they are are played in conjunction with other keys and notes, there's beautiful music. But when you start playing one note, that gets annoying and it turns people off. So the very... You know, but if, if you take that note and you pair it with others, now we've got beauty. Um, I've decided to, this is me. So I'm, I'm not saying anybody who, who does it differently is wrong. For me, I use social media in such a way to play various notes. Because what, what I see happening is if all you tweet about all you Snapchat about, all you Instagram about, whatever maybe, all you Facebook about, is racial incidents. Then you're going, you're going to turn away a whole bunch of people, and your tribe is going to get really small. And you will only really have followers who think like you, act like you, look like you, and vote like you. For me, because I want to see change, I'm always asking the question, how can I get people to follow me who don't see it the way that I do when it comes to issues of race? And for me, being able to play different notes is helpful. Uh -huh. So I would, this is just me, I would lengthen your social media platform to go beyond issues of race. Include them, 
but go beyond them. Mm -hmm. I think that's wisdom. Me and um, a friend were just talking about it, uh, Dr. Vince Bantu, uh, who's a PhD at Covenant. And we were talking about the problems we see in academia for African-Americans uh, when, we, when it comes to biblical studies and when I want to engage other topics with black academics um, in other fields. And because even the PhDs, all of them uh, for a large part are writing on race. So when it comes to something like uh, evolution or any other biblical topic, because everybody's honed in on race, then we don't have a voice in other areas. Um, and so, like you said, diversifying is, I think, really important for our culture so yeah. we can speak truth to power to every area. Yes. And then we won't be limited to one aspect because we yes. have things to say about other areas. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I, I think that's that's uh, really, really helpful. Um, something I heard you talk about, um, I, I can't remember if it was a lecture or a sermon, uh, talking about um, speaking about systemic injustices and and um, personal piety and how those two are together in, in, in the Pauline letters. And I've been thinking about that recently as I've been reading um, Raphael Warnock's book, The Divided Mind of the Black Church. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book. I've heard of it. I've heard uh -huh. of it. And he talks about in the intro that the focus for African-American churches has been either, either the slavery of sin or the sin of slavery. And uh, it seems that is the the tension um, for many in the black church to focus on uh, the slavery of sin and focus on systemic injustices. And then others, um, especially in your more Pentecostal, black Pentecostal circles that, that I grew up in is personal piety. Um, how do we get those, how do we get people to see that they're not, um, working against each other, they actually something, it's a both and not a, the either or. Absolutely. So uh, what, what the question you're asking is, I think the central question, um, because from a church history perspective, what devastated the church was the, the divorce that happened in the early 20th century, um, which is called the fundamentalist modernist divide. And what happened in that divide, and it's an oversimplification, is fundamentally the fundamentalists said uh, it's all about truth in our relationship with God. So they just kind of took that vertical, just you and Jesus. Um, and, of course, their progeny would be how we would term evangelicals today. So they focused on what we would call a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just learn more about Christ. Everything's personal. The modernists went the horizontal route. They said it's fundamentally our relationship with our neighbors. And it, by the way, it was the modernists who really uh, marched in the civil rights movement. Um, the problem with the modernists though is without being anchored solidly in truth, their progeny has become what we would call liberals who have made gross compromises of scripture. And to your point, they made it in either or when Jesus and the scriptures presented as a both and. And I've written extensively about this in my book, A Cross-Shaped Gospel, where to get at this, I use the metaphor of the cross, which you've got the vertical beam and you've also got the horizontal beam and they're tethered to each other. 
to show that the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. So, for example, Jesus, Jesus said, look, the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, vertical. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal. Or, you know, when John says, how can I claim to love God whom I don't see, vertical, and yet hate my brother whom I do see, horizontal. By the way, the Jewish idea of hate wasn't feelings of ill will. It was separation. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus says, hey, you can't follow me unless you're willing to hate mother and father and sister and brother. He's not calling us towards feeling of ill ill will. He's asking us to separate. Um, Ephesians 2 is a classic example. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. I mean, that's all all vertical. But then verses 11 to 22, he's speaking of Jesus. He's dismantled the dividing wall of hostility. So now Jews and Gentiles can rush in together and worship. That's horizontal. So the Bible knows nothing of this bifurcation or this dichotomy, this either or proposition. Instead, it tethers both of them together. And so I think the church's most position for power are those who wield those two things together profoundly. Uh, Last thing I'll say is, you know, we've all read the story of Zacchaeus. I think that's Luke 19. And here's Zacchaeus. It's very interesting. He's called the chief tax collector, which means, you know, tax collectors, of course, they extorted people. They were greedy swindlers, lowest of the low. But when it calls Zacchaeus the chief tax collector, it means that he oversees a system of injustice. He has other tax collectors underneath him, and he has put this unjust system together. Long story short, we know how the story goes. Jesus invites him over to the house. And then Zacchaeus goes, hey, look, I've wronged some people. And up to half my goods, I'll give to the poor. And those whom I've wronged, I'll restore it back to them up to fourfold. Jesus says, today, salvation's come to your, come to your uh, uh, house. Now, it's interesting. He never tells Zacchaeus to do that. The way Jesus says, I know that you're saved, is your first reaction to the impulse of the Spirit of God is to give gospel restitution horizontally towards those you have systemically wronged. And for all this gospel talk, we never talk about restitution. Mm -hmm. We never talk about systems of injustice and what it looks like to give back to the very ones you've wronged. So in that one passage, we see Jesus saying, I know you're saved based on the restitution you're making towards those in whom you've wronged. To Jesus, those two things go go together. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy are to fit within the womb of the local church. That's what gospel ministry is. Yes, yes. I think that is at the core of of the the gospel message and something that we should always like to say. I stole this from uh, Pastor Charles. He uses this as a uh, he uses the the metaphor of the uh, of playing for something else, but I think orthodoxy and orthopraxy are are just like two two uh two wings on a plane. If you don't have both, it's going down. Yep, um, absolutely. So um, thank you, thank you for that. Um, last question: As I go in these spaces, and I think we have a similar story. As in, I, I come from a two parent home. My parents have been married for 31 years. My father's a pastor. Um, 
So I grew up in that. I have a, a level of privilege in, in that sense. And uh, what frustrates me is when I go into uh, conservative white spaces and they'll say things like, oh, you know your dad. Um, oh, your parents are still together. And this view of Black people is very narrow. Um, even when I say I'm doing apologetics to the African-American context, they assume that I'm just doing working with Black or black poor in the inner city. Right. And I'm right. like, I'm from the suburbs of Jacksonville, Florida. So right. <laughs> that's just been my, that's been my, I grew up in a Black middle-class neighborhood. Right. Um, how do we get uh, our, our white evangelical brothers to see Black people um, as diverse uh, as far as economic status? And also, are we perpetual, as far as Black people that are in um, spaces, whether they may be church planning, that they overly seem to talk about Black poor as if Black people are just poor. Um, sometimes it seems as if in an effort to raise money, sometimes we paint Black people as needing help to the point where it's almost needing white saviors. In a sense, am I making sense with my question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think part of the problem, Lisa, is we do that to ourselves. There is a sociological construct that you're probably familiar with called the blackness that whiteness created. And it's tragic, but what we do to ourselves as a community is we have a benchmark to authenticate the blackness of a person based on its proximity to whiteness. Meaning the further you are from perceived whiteness, the more authentic, authentically black you are, all right? So the less proper you talk, we say, the more black you are. When I was coming up, Lisa, this is awful. I can literally, I'm not telling you what I've heard. I'm not telling you what's, what's happened to other people. I can literally tell you of times I was made fun of for making good grades. And I was told because I was making good grades that I was acting white. This is, this is coming from black people. The way I talk, I've been told I talk white. Now, what that sociological context says, the irony of it is, the blackness that whiteness created means we're giving white folk power to determine what makes one authentically black. Mm -hmm. So all I'm saying, Lisa, is even in our own community, we fail to validate the nuance of what black is. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I, See, I, I think, yes, white folk don't have that nuance. They need to have it. But we also got to admit our, our own house really isn't clean when it comes to this stuff either. And we've got to have that conversation. Um, you know, it's, look, I'm a registered independent. I hate partisan politics. Um, but you, you know, an African-American Republican who is on Fox News is going to be looked at by a bunch of African-Americans as not being authentically black. Mm -hmm. That's a problem because because now you got to tell me where where are you where are you getting your definition of blackness from? Probably whiteness. 
which means we are empowering oppression. Mm. So that's a fascinating conversation we've got to have. To answer your question directly, I don't think there's any quick fixes to it. I think there's multiple culprits. Media has had more power to shape culture than anything else. And the predominant images of blackness that we get via the media is really thugs, someone who's incarcerated, you, you name it. Um, which is why the Cosby Show did so well, because it was considered this outlier of a thing. When the truth of the matter is there's plenty of homes like that. Um, so I think media has done a number on us. I think the, the best fix to it long term is being in relationships with white folk and letting them just stumble across relationally. Huh. This is a different black person. Like we go out to eat, they've actually paid the bill for both of us. Huh. They've not once asked me for money. Huh. Their house is as big as mine. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. so I, and, I, and look, I tell white folk that all the time. I said, look, if your only posture of working with people of color is some mission trip you went on holding a black baby that you Instagram or put on Facebook, if that's your only posture, that's a messianic posture and you're going to entrench the very thing you're trying to dismantle. Nuance your relationships. It's good to help some people, but you need keeps and White folk need to learn how to follow black leadership, people of color. I think, and, I, and I'm writing about this in my, in, my, in my forthcoming book. I think the gentrification and white folks falling in love with the cities again and their version of urban church planting to gentrifiers has done a gross disservice and a lot of violence to some really great indigenous churches who are already there but are dying on the vine in gentrifying communities. But never once do they think, these church planners, there's already some good churches here. Huh, maybe I could actually learn something from these pastors. Maybe a year of following their leadership could do me some good. This is what Reggie Williams gets to in his magical book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. And he points out that if Bonhoeffer doesn't join the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem in the 1930s, follow a black pastor, which by the way, that phrase, cheap grace, Bonhoeffer didn't come up with that. He got that from his black pastor. Bonhoeffer says, I don't go back to Germany to stand up for the oppressed Jews if I don't first hear the gospel to the oppressed at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Well, what is Bonhoeffer saying? It did me a lot of good to follow black leadership. Yeah, yeah. And I think, so if, if you're a white person listening, I would say, Pray for three kinds of relationships. Folk you can help, peer relationships with people of color, and folk who are actually discipling you or whose leadership you are following, who are who are ethnically different than you. I think that's a winning recipe. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And if y'all don't know what uh, uh, Pastor Loritz is talking about with Bonhoeffer and Abyssinia, you can check out our past episode with uh Reggie Williams on on his book that was a we had a few months ago. He was very helpful um, on that topic, and I think that's something that shocked a lot of people that didn't know uh, about how Bonhoeffer was at in Harlem at Abyssinia. So definitely tremendously tremendously helpful. What last words would you leave uh, with our our listeners? 
You know, stay prayerfully hopeful. Um, I, I really feel like the needle is the needle is moving. There are times in which it feels like it's going forward, and there are times in which it feels like it's going way backwards. But I really believe we're making progress. It, it's not at the rate that I would like to see. But don't let anything or anyone rob you of your joy, rob you of the call to love, uh, guard your heart, have nuanced relationships with different ethnicities, stay prayerful, stay hopeful. Um, if you're in a toxic situation, you may need to get out of that. Um, but this, this thing is 400 years in the making. It ain't going to change overnight. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Stay at it. It's, it's worthwhile. Absolutely. Well, thank you, uh, Pastor Loritz. What books would you recommend um, on this topic? I know you mentioned some that you've you've already written. And um, how can people get in contact with you on social media? Yeah, so um, I am. Uh, I've turned in my manuscript. My next project is called an Evangelical Eulogy, where I argue for the death of white evangelicalism. Um, so this, I feel like, it's a memoir style where these principles are embedded in my own narrative. I talk a lot about multi-ethnic sharecropping. Uh, I talk a lot about being Kaepernicked. Uh, talk a lot about being trumped. Uh, so I think you'll find that a source of encouragement. Um, that should be released later on this year. There's a great book I just read called Stamped from the Beginning. Stamped from the Beginning. It's the most comprehensive historical piece on race in America that I've ever read, which is really good. Um, so I, I, I would recommend that highly. So you can get in touch with me on Twitter, BC Loritz. I'm at BC Loritz on Instagram. I'm simply at Loritz. Um, I'm, I hang out a lot there. I'm on Facebook too. I've got a public profile on there. So, uh, those three platforms would, would be helpful in keeping up with what God's doing through me. Well, thank you, Pastor Loritz. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.